Welcome to episode four of the internalcustomer.com podcast. This is Eric Brown and Nick Thomas. Today we'll be talking, just kind of catching up a little bit on what we've been doing and also some of the work we've submitted and then perhaps what we're going to be looking forward to in the next couple months. Uh, to start off, we'd like to talk about a grant that we submitted a little over a month ago uh, to the Society of Human Resource Management. We've had so many different things going on as of late related to, to research. It seems like it's this ongoing factory um, of, of research that we're cranking out here. And I think this is for those people that are listening that are on tenure track or who have research as a part of their responsibility, I think that they can probably sympathize a little bit with where we are um, right now. The SHRM grant that we put forward really wanted to look at how social media influences HR decision making. And what we mean by that is we, when you look at the service industry as a whole, and the service industry can be a lot of different industries, not just hospitality and tourism, the areas that we teach in, but it can be healthcare, it can be insurance, arts and entertainment. There's lots of different directions that you can go when you talk about the service industry. And the human resources decisions that are made in these industries can relate to anything from recruitment, selection, training and development, performance management, compensation. And we want to see, does an employee's social media, and we're calling it their footprint, so their kind of profile on social media, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we want to see if that has any influence on those decisions that their supervisors and managers are making about them in the workplace. When we look at Sherman, we look at some of the literature in the past, a lot of companies say, absolutely not. We don't use that in decision making. But I think when we talk to practitioners face to face, and sometimes when we're off the record, they say, absolutely, we do. And let me give you a perfect example of this. If I tell my students all the time, when you apply for a job, go forward with this application under the assumption that as soon as a hiring manager gets your application, they will go to Google, they will go to Twitter, they will go to Facebook, and they will type in your name to see if they can get a little bit more information about you. And then it raises the question, well, well, why do employers do that? Well, I think we see a lot of students coming out of college right now that have very similar attributes in terms of knowledge, skills, and abilities. They, they, the GPAs are high, hospitality curriculums today have a lot of generalizable similarities. I think when we look at involved in student activities, co-curricular and kind of extracurricular, whether it's clubs, fraternities, sororities, I think we, we see a lot of similar attributes amongst graduates. And from an employer standpoint, sometimes being able to get just that little extra bit of information about the person that is coming to apply for a job with you can be a really useful tool. And we kind of want to investigate not just do companies have policies that either permit or forbid this action from occurring, but if they are, 
doing this, to what extent are they doing it? Is it something that's just used in the recruiting process? Is it something that's used in making compensation decisions? Should I give this person a promotion? Should I give this person more money? Well, I saw their social media feed and some of the things that they do in their personal life I maybe don't agree with. How does that, if it does at all, influence those HR decisions? And that's what we want to look at. And we're going to look, what we're proposing to Sherm is really quite a large and comprehensive study. We're going to look at healthcare, insurance, we're going to look at hospitality, we're going to look at recreation and entertainment, like theme parks and things like that. So um, we're really going to make an effort to, to make this not just a local regional study. We're proposing to go out to the West Coast. We're going to look at the Midwest. We're also going to look at the East Coast because we might find that trends show that, well, maybe on the different coasts, West or East, that it's a pretty common practice to look at social media feeds. But here in the Midwest, it's not. And so that's kind of what we're proposing to Sherm. The research team that we put together is all assistant professors. These are individuals that have great industry experience, that they have great research track records. They're fantastic in the classroom. And if we're lucky enough to get this grant, I think it would really um, not only add quite a, a robust piece of research to the literature, but I think it would also really serve industry as a whole. Absolutely. And I think the uh, you did mention that there could be differences among the different regions we're going to look at. So the West Coast, um, particularly, I believe, was it San Francisco, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. And I think if uh, there are some differences, that'll be an interesting finding. But also, there could be some differences between the four different sectors of the uh, industries we're look- or of the service sector that we're looking at. And so the Sherm grant, um, like you said, if we're lucky enough to get it, it'll be quite a bit of work, but I think the outputs from it will be quite valuable to uh, both us in the classroom and then also to practitioners as they're trying to maybe craft a policy on the social media use in the hiring or the uh, compensation, firing, et cetera, so all throughout the HR decisions. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if I had to guess right now, I'm... It's, I think we're going to find dramatic differences between the different service sectors that we look at. For example, the financial sector. So we're going to go to the West Coast, uh, San Francisco, like you said. We're going to go to Chicago. Um, we're going to go to Washington, D.C. These are uh, maybe not as much Washington, D.C., but definitely Chicago. These are financial centers of the country. And I think we're going to talk to some of these individuals that work for some of these big financial companies, and they're going to have a very different perspective on how they actually go out and recruit compared to somebody maybe that's working in the restaurant industry or working in the hotel industry. And I think that's going to be absolutely fascinating. And, and I don't want to necessarily say at this point that it's a bad thing that we're going out and looking at this. And it's a bad thing that companies are using this. I think it's kind of the reality of the world that we live in today. I think 20 years ago, looking for information that could give you better insight into a candidate was really taboo and it was really discouraged. But I think today we we try to get as much information on a candidate and an employee as we can to really help us make these decisions. Because in some cases, 
we're investing tens, twenty, thirty thousand dollars just in the recruitment, selection, and training of these employees. So if we want to start getting into a bigger discussion about how do we get the biggest ROI on our HR investment, well, information is a big part of that. And going out and seeing what can I find out about this candidate can be a really useful tool. Right. And I think obviously there are some issues with discrimination and such that could be an issue. But typically when you're hiring people, the more information you have, the more accurate information you have or being able to confirm some information that you've received maybe on the application or wherever, um, just kind of take away the whole social media part of it. Your goal as the HR professional or the person hiring is to make sure that you're hiring the right person, um, and then also it's going to be a good investment of that ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars Well, and I, and I mean, I agree, and I think the to kind of add to that, if this is where we are heading in terms of information collection that I'm actually not really opposed to it. Where we start to get into a really a gray area is if we choose to seek external information through social media footprints for only certain candidates, then we can really start to make the case of, okay, are we segregating? Are we discriminating? But if we're going to do it, and, and if we know that, that we use this tool, that we go out and we look at, let's say, an applicant's Twitter profile or their, an applicant's Facebook footprint, if you do it for one, you have to do it for all applicants. And I think that's probably where we're going to see some pushback. I think that some people would say, yes, I will go out and I'll, and I'll search for them on Google and I'll search for them on social media if I'm not really getting enough information from their application or from their resume. And when we start picking and choosing, I'm only going to do that for this candidate or I'm only going to do it for this candidate, then we start running into issues of validity. We start running into issues of reliability in the selection process. And I, and I know you do and I do as well. We talk to our students all the time about validity and reliability, that if your selection method is valid, it has to relate directly to the job. Okay, if that's the case, what is what are you looking for on social media that relates directly to the job that these, this person is applying for? And then if it's reliable, we want to make sure that there's consistency. So that if you do it for Joe, you have to do it for Steve as well. And I don't think that they... I don't think recruiters necessarily fully grasp that. I don't think hiring managers at the department level really grasp this idea of validity and reliability. And maybe the end result of this is us educating kind of the practical line level manager on appropriate, and I'm using that word kind of in quotes, an appropriate way to conduct human resource management. Right, because obviously there are there may be cases where individuals uh, are at the line level or um, just like the first level managers using this and not realizing that there could be a broader impact or not realize that only using social media for certain candidates is or could lead to problems in the future. And so I think you're right that it, it the outcome of whether or not they're using it, that's great, um, but it could will also be very beneficial to have some sort of um, this is what needs to be done, almost trying to inform and train the individuals who may use social media to uh, 
hire or whatever decision, HR decisions. I don't foresee the project we're doing uh, stopping people from using it, but I think we could have some outcomes that would make sure that they're using it um, that are in a way that is more reliable, valid, and also perhaps legal. Yeah, I mean, that, that issue of legal defensibility, I think, is critical. I mean, at the at the end of the day, let's say that you were charged with negligent hiring or you were, um, you know, the, the, the person that you hired was not the most appropriate person for that job. And they go back and they say, well, walk us through the selection process. How did you determine that Eric Brown was the best candidate? And if you have a policy that says, well, we can or we can't do X, Y, and Z, and you actually went out and did X, Y, and Z, and you were in violation of that, you put yourself in a bind. I mean, you paint yourself into a corner. Right. Well, and if they don't have a policy, it may be the fact that they did go out and check these social media profiles for some candidates, maybe not for others, but I doubt that the documentation is there that they did it for any of them, because there is that questionability in their mind is this okay to do? Should I be doing this? Um, the best thing for me, I guess, would be that I'd receive the information. I just won't document where I got it from. Um, and so if you did come up and say, well, don't you typically search social media or don't you typically Google these people or run a background check? Um, I think the worst thing that they could probably say is we're not sure. We may have, we may not have. Um, and so having that documentation, which would come from a good policy on social media, would be important. So I think you bring up that interesting point about the background checks is that background checks, while many companies do them, and we actually had this discussion, I actually had this discussion recently with somebody, background checks are very, very useful tools. But the problem is, is when we want to do a background check, are we really able to obtain information that's going to help us predict how successful someone is going to be? Or are all we getting is, yes, this is when Eric worked here, this is how much he made, and yes, he is eligible for rehire. That tells me absolutely nothing that is at, at the end of the day. That tells me, okay, yes, what he wrote on his resume is true. But that doesn't tell me um, what sort of interpersonal skills do you have. That doesn't tell me, tell me about your leadership ability Tell me about how motivated you are. Tell me about your passion for this particular business. And I think that's what sometimes drives people out to those kind of supplementary sources of information about people. Okay, I'm going to, I want to go on to Eric's Facebook page or I want to go and Google Eric and see what else I can find that I can basically put on this piece of paper and say, yep. I can predict that he's going to be the most successful if I choose him. So, you know, I'm looking forward to this. I think that if, if we end up getting this grant, it's, it's going to be, you talked about a, a significant time commitment. I mean, this is about a uh, 18 to 24 month process to, from kind of start to finish. This is going to be a um, something where, as I mentioned, there's going to be four of us researching. We have proposed the use of uh, a graduate student to help us with this process and kind of the data collection and analysis. So, so this, for me, um, and I think for you too, kind of here at Iowa State, this is probably one of the most significant grant proposals. I mean, purely in just the time it took to put it together, I think it's one of the biggest. 
Um, but in terms of the, the impact that it could have if we're successful in our proposal, I, I think it's absolutely tremendous. We've kind of thrown the, uh, thrown the phrase out there, game changer, and I think it really could be. I, I don't think that we see a lot of research that is large and generalizable on this particular topic. And then if we get it, I think we'll really be able to make our mark. Absolutely. And I think we uh, can move on to our next topic. Uh, For those that don't know, uh, recently Nick was elected as the incoming president for the Central Federation of Cree. um, And I was actually elected for the VP position uh, starting in July. And with uh, while those two roles are very important, we also have the Central Federation Educational Symposium coming up, um, which will be in May in Chicago. And Nick and I will actually be doing a, um, I guess, a talk on the teaching in the modern classroom. And I think it's something that Nick and I have both experimented with, added new techniques, etc., um, trying to make sure that everything we do in the classroom helps to create this learning environment that is very beneficial to the students. And we're trying to not only teach the students some of the methods that we use, but also trying to adapt the methods we use to how they learn, Um, whether that be from using technology in the classroom, like a laptop, a cell phone, and so on, or just the overall interaction that they have with their peers. I think the interaction has definitely changed over the years that um, becoming more sociable, becoming more, uh, I don't know, just willing, I guess, to talk about more than just the classroom. And so it's a matter of trying to piece everything together. Um, While we don't necessarily have this is the best method of the modern classroom, we'll be talking a lot about what we've done, uh, things we've seen successful, uh, feedback we've received from students on what we've done, and so on. I think, you know, this is always a uh, an issue that every single... um, Actually, let me maybe take a step back real quick and talk maybe about what Cree is for a moment. Um, Cree is basically the professional organization for hospitality educators um, that we're associated with. And the conference, the symposium that we're going to is the central states within the U.S. This is their um, a conference that we put on to kind of bring academics together. And as you mentioned, the topic that we're going to talk about is the modern classroom. And, and this, this has been a topic that, that you and I, in addition to human resources, I think have really found a, a common, common bond and a common interest in. Because what I've found is I've taken a very progressive approach to the use of technology in my classroom, and I know you have as well. And it initially started out when I was uh, teaching in Singapore. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't something that uh, it was a policy that I created. It was a policy that the university had. The particular university that I was working for in Singapore, every single student was given a laptop. And I had never seen this before. And there were lots of reasons why it was able to work in this particular environment. One of them was it had a relatively small student body. This was the international campus for um, a U.S. university. But But the fact that every single student had a laptop really made the teaching experience and the learning environment very different for me from the way that I came up. I came up with kind of, I mean, I remember as far back as when the instructor would use the overhead projector and kind of write with the washable or erasable marker. And then we eventually transitioned to PowerPoint. 
but there were still faculty members that were lagging behind in the use of that. So they still use the chalkboard. And very, very quickly, everything started to change with technology in the classroom. I mean, it was almost overnight this happened. And when I was over in Singapore and I was teaching, I found that we could add this level of interactivity to the classroom. So for example, I would be sitting and I would be talking about Marriott or I would be talking about Hilton or I would be talking about a particular uh, airline and I would see the students and I would hear them feverishly start typing on their computer. And I was trying to figure out what, what is it that they're doing? And what they were doing is they were going online, looking at the websites for those companies to try to get a very quick visual representation of what I was talking about. So if I talked about Marriott's recruiting policies, I would they would immediately go to the Marriott career website and they would start looking at it and they could offer real-time feedback and real-time critique. And then all of a sudden, the classroom became a completely different environment for me. That not only did I say, yes, bring your laptops, yes, bring your tablets. Well, we didn't really have tablets at that time. They weren't as popular as they are today. But yes, bring your smartphone, yes, bring your laptop, and make it a part of the learning experience. So when I came back to the U.S. after staying in Singapore and, and I was at DePaul, not only would I encourage them to do it, but I would actually start mandating it in some cases that bring your device to class. So when I would break them up into small groups and, or I would give them an individual assignment, they could use their computer. And the, the biggest knock against this is, well, the student isn't always going to do class-related work on their device. And my response to that is always the same. That's just life. That's kind of what the student is today. They're multitasking. They've got five or six different things going on. They, Yes, they might be checking their email. Yes, they might be tweeting. Yes, they might be on other social media things. But they're also listening to me. So you and I have been kind of toying around with some, some other ways to not to kind of inject some I'll use the phrase loosely, technology steroids into the classroom through real-time feedback mechanisms, survey software, engage and response systems. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some of the pros. We're going to talk about some of the cons of using it. For example, I think one of the biggest pros that I've seen is I now interact with my students on social media, and I get that every professor wouldn't like that and it it's kind of an invasion of their personal life if you will but i found that i've actually i actually know a lot more about my students from a from a good side and they kind of know more about me who i am um so the relationship that i have with my students i think is a lot stronger than it was before i started using and kind of embracing technology in the classroom yeah and i think the the one point that you made about singapore was that they actually received their laptop as they were coming into the program, which is something that not many schools will be able to do. I know, I mean, Iowa State, the students aren't receiving a laptop as they come, so you don't know that every single student will have the laptop. Um, so it's not a luxury you have to mandate the use of a laptop or mandate the use of bringing a device to class when 
the university or it's not built into their fees um, and so on. But, I mean, we've done small research looking at what kind of devices they have, and virtually everyone has some sort of method that would allow them to access the Internet in class or at least send some sort of text message. And so that's where some of that classroom response software came in. Um, in the larger lecture halls, it's easier to collect the overall feeling of the classroom. You can ask them, um, are there any questions with this topic? Or um, how do you feel? What's your comfort level here? And you can get that real-time feedback without forcing people to raise their hand and say, well, I don't quite get it, um, and kind of stand out. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's starting to happen with technology use in the classroom is I think we're starting to see trends that mirror what's going on in the kind of external world that initially it was, okay, everybody brought their laptop. And then that starts to shrink. And now lots of people are bringing a tablet. Now all of a sudden that's shrinking. And now the smartphones are advanced enough where everything that you need is right there. And, And I'm really excited to see where we are in three or four years from now. I mean, am, am I using Google Glass? Are the students using Google Glass? Do they have a device built into their watch? I mean, I mean, what is it that the classroom is going to look like? And, and I'm hoping our stand-up presentation could maybe spur some of that discussion that I've, I've seen very, very limited use of Google Glass in the classroom environment. It seems like the the schools in close proximity to Silicon Valley are getting the the first dibs. They haven't quite made it out here to Ames, Iowa yet, and uh, hopefully that's in the near future. But but I'm just I'm so excited to see where we are three to four years from now with technology because the the adoption, the rate in which technology is changing is going so fast you can barely keep up with it. Right. And well, and I think that's one of the things that our students in particular like is that we're trying to keep up. We're trying to, uh, like I said, kind of reach out to the way that they learn or the way that they interact. And there's plenty of studies that if you have this community outside of the classroom, which you can kind of get from social media, that it'll help engage the students more frequently in the classroom. They'll feel more comfortable um, talking or raising their hand or speaking or presenting in front of their class because it becomes more of this collection of peers, collection of this culture that you understand each other, you interact with each other, and so they're more comfortable. And you made a good point about you get to know the students a little bit more. Um, If there's ever any issues, I know you had an issue once or twice on social media in the last year or so. Um, It's something that you can address. It's a learning experience for the students that if you say this, anyone can see it. And if you had a job, this could lead to problems. Um, That's part of our, I guess, SHRM grant that we'll be looking into. Um, Some of the comments people make and how that impacts their um, current employment status. And for you, it was just the status within the classroom that if there is an issue, just needs to be addressed and it's a learning experience for the student. Sure. And I think that we always have to be very cognizant of the fact that this, that the, that our customers are in many cases, 17, 18, 19, year, 20, 21 year old individuals. So With that comes all the growing pains that you and I went through when we were younger. And sometimes just a a quick refresher on etiquette, a quick refresher on um, what's appropriate, that whether it's discouraging bullying, whether it's 
posting something that's inappropriate, whether it's um, asking something that maybe would have been better directed to me individually via email. Uh, so there's, but there's, but if there's anything that I take away from, from the students today, it's the fact that they learn and they adapt very quickly. They just need to see, to see it once or twice and kind of get in the rhythm and then they pick it up so quick. They know what I shouldn't post, what I should, what my privacy settings should be, what they shouldn't be. And the ability for them to adapt is absolutely remarkable. Uh, so it's maybe that's something also that that future studies could look at is right. is kind of some best practices for that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it paired well with, I mean, the experiences we're going to hopefully go through for the SHRM grant. Um, many of those principles could be applied back to the classroom or um, or whatnot. But um, and the thing is, neither of us seek out or try and find issues with student posts or social media. I'm not clicking on every student that I see and looking at their previous tweets. It's stuff that shows up through conversations. If you have a post about class and someone replies to it, you're obviously going to see that. Um, And some students may not understand how all of it works. If they reply to a tweet, but they don't hashtag or tag you, maybe they don't understand that you'll still see it simply because it was a reply to something that you posted. Sure. And, you know, a perfect example of this is that quite a lot of my, that I don't mandate that my students are on Twitter. I say, this is the course hashtag, and I, and I use Twitter as a supplement in my class. It's not that everything is posted through our learning management system, but I'll kind of use Twitter as a supplemental way to, to communicate. But quite a lot of my students, their Twitter accounts are set to private, and I absolutely respect that. And I say... If you would like to engage me on Twitter and your setting is to private, you have to make a specific request to follow me. That I'm not just going to actively follow you and break that kind of privacy barrier. And I've always and I've learned through using social media and interacting with my students that you have to always respect that boundary. That even though we're interacting technically outside of the classroom, there still is a ethical kind of moral professional relationship and expectation that we have. It's the same reason that um, you and I aren't down at the college bars on the weekends drinking with the students. There, there is that line that we still need to make sure that we don't cross with respect to we're the professors, we're the faculty members, you're the student. And sometimes that just needs a quick refresher in the mind of the student about what's the appropriate thing to do. Right. Well, and I think this kind of leads into another project that we're taking on, I suppose. And we're actually going to teach or teach, I guess, facilitate a one credit hour course in the fall, just kind of looking at the current issues of social media in the hospitality industry. And I think it'll be very interesting for students to see the impact that social media has in the present time from uh, current hospitality, I don't know, professionals or organizations. Um, we're hoping to get some guest speakers in that'll be able to directly address some of the issues that they've experienced and so on. But it'll also pair back well with the SHRM grant that we have um, an application out for. Well, and I, I think that one of the things that I've always been impressed by is that as you get to know the students and as you get to kind of mentor them and help them through 
the curriculum, you realize that every student has very different um, needs and desires about what they want their career to look like in terms of where they go. Lots want to go into events, but that is such a broad field. I mean, that could be everything from working for an association to a Fortune 500 company, anywhere in the world. We have students that go into lodging, but but what is that? Is that small hotel, big hotel, luxury, economy, resort, city, uh, rural? Um, and one of the things that's very generalizable is that wherever they want to go, social media will be a part of their professional career. Whether it's used as a tool for marketing, whether it's used as a tool to um, promote the brand, to make sales, whatever it might be. Social media is not going anywhere. <laughs> there are lots of trends that we can see in terms of technology that have gone the wayside. And it might not be the exact social media applications that we see today. I mean, the the MySpaces of the world's kind of disappeared. It's making somewhat of a resurgence, but it disappeared. Maybe in 10 years, Facebook isn't going to be it. Maybe in 10 years, Twitter is not going to be it. But the idea that we interact with other individuals online in a very readily accessible format is not going anywhere. That's the reality. So that's what I really hope that we can gain from teaching this class is we can start to explore some of those trends to really help prepare the students for what the future might look like. Um, and one of the ways that we do that, as you mentioned, is bringing in guest speakers, using case studies, um, but really also having those discussions and those dialogues. That the, the way that we facilitate our classes, it's not a lecture in the um, monologue sense of the word. It's I almost feel like I have a dialogue with my students when I'm in the classroom, and that's what I hope that this class would be like. Right. Well, and with that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. If you have any questions for us or comments, feel free to send us an email. I am eric at internalcustomer.com. Nick is nick at internalcustomer.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter. My handle is ebphd, and Nick's is Nicholas J. Thomas. And for that, uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. We would also like to give a shout-out and a big thank you to The Moose for allowing us to use their song in our intro. You can find out more about them at facebook.com slash the moose the band.